One of my career goals, one of the things I'd like to, so I, I feel like I have maybe 20 years left. I'm 51 years old. Perhaps I'll retire when I'm, when I'm 71. Maybe I'll throttle things down a little bit, but I, I look forward to things that, that maybe you don't think about. You know, you see those little kids running around here. You see uh, Elspeth Dekarski. If the Lord allows, I'll be able to perform her wedding at some point in the future. Amen. Wouldn't that be exciting? Yeah. Yeah, that would be exciting. All of these little kids running around here, those are the, I see things in the future. You know, Rebecca Brady, she was uh, the first wedding that I performed as a minister here. I did it with Sean Dekarski. Her daughter is Elizabeth. I could perform that as my last. Now she's going to have to meet, you know, Prince Charming and all those kind of things. <laughs> We're working on it. One of the other things I have as a career goal is I want to make sure that I preach all 150 psalms. Okay, in 20 years, there's, there's 150 psalms, so I have to sort of parse them out and, and, and throw them in here and there. And in this series called Conversations with God, that's one of the things, it's, it's a career goal, to get to the end of my career and to preach through all of the Psalms. If I was a younger man, I'd say, you know, every passage verse by verse, but all the Psalms. We'll call it a goal. You hold me to it, okay? The Psalms are sometimes, sometimes they're happy Psalms. I told you last week or two weeks ago, if you have an emotion, there is a Psalm for that if you're happy, if you're excited, there is a psalm that just bursts forth with praise about God. And if you're sad, there's a psalm for when you're sad. There's also a psalm for when you're crushed and hopeless. Should I save that one for last? No. <laughs> you want to, don't you? I, I want to. I'm like... This is Psalm 88. That's what we're doing today. It's a psalm for when there is no hope. That's hard. It's a downer. It's a downer. It, it, the psalm ends with, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with the ending. Darkness, or I'll start with the ending. Darkness is my closest friend. And that's it. And people sang this as a, as a community in ancient Israel. They, they went all the way to darkness as my closest friend. That's it. There's not a whole lot of happy clappy in there, is there? Darkness is my closest friend. It's a downer ending. Now this is a literary device where happily ever after just doesn't happen. The good guy faces tragedy. The hero dies. There is no rescue. The monsters take over. When evil wins, it makes us think about the reality of life in a fallen world. It shakes us when we're comfortable. And it comforts us when we're shaken. The downer ending is on purpose. You might recall, uh, you may have read this in high school, John Steinbeck wrote a book called Of Mice and Men. In this book, there are two characters. There's George, who is the, he's the guy who's with it. He's, he's small, he's sharp, he's quick, he's intelligent. He kind of knows what's going on. And he's friends, he's partnered up with this guy named Lenny. Now Lenny is just a gigantic, kind of a shapeless blob. He's not very smart, and he's always getting into trouble. And so they're partners. And it, the setting is out in the West, you know, years ago, where people would, would travel and work from farm to farm. 
And so George and Lenny are a team. And so they're on their way to this job, and they stop and camp for the night. Back in the day where you could just camp for the night pretty much wherever. And Lenny likes soft things. He likes to pet soft things. And so George finds that he has a mouse in his pocket. But the mouse is dead. And so George is like, have you lost your mind? What are you doing? You're going to get some disease. And he starts yelling at him. Just, ah. But what you realize in that moment was that George loves Lenny. And Lenny loves George. They need each other. They're friends. Unlikely friends, maybe, but they're friends. And so they get to the farm, and Lenny ends up with a puppy. You know what's going to happen. Because he's not gentle. He can't be gentle. He loves soft things and he wants to pet the soft things, but the soft things always die. And so the puppy dies. And on this farm, it's kind of a dysfunctional farm. What is there to do out on a farm? Work. That's pretty much all you do on a farm. You just work. And so the, the boss's son has married this beautiful young woman and brought her to the farm where there's not much to do. And so what does she do? She kind of, she's kind of flirtatious. She flirts with all the farmhands and she's constantly kind of getting in, in trouble. And so she comes and she finds Lenny in the barn and he's sad because his puppy has died. He likes to, to stroke soft things and touch soft things. And so she says, okay, you can, you can touch my hair. She's got very pretty hair. And, Lenny's not gentle. And so as Lenny begins touching her hair, he grabs and pulls and she screams. And Lenny thinks, I'm going to get in trouble. So he tries to stop her screaming and he accidentally breaks her neck. Now this is out west. This is on a farm. You don't have 911 to call. You take care of things yourself. And so George and Lenny had arranged, there's a meeting place when if, if trouble happens and they know trouble's going to happen. We're going to meet here, and we're going to handle the trouble. And so Lenny runs to the meeting place, and George knows where to find him. And the ranch hands have all formed a lynch mob. They're going to go lynch Lenny. They're going to hang him for what he did. And so George finds Lenny at their meeting place. And they've always wanted to have their own farm. They've always wanted to have their own place where they could raise rabbits, where they could be safe, where Lenny would be protected. And George knows that the lynch mob is coming for his friend. And so he kills him. George shoots Lenny and kills him. That's depressing. That, that is a downer ending. And authors throughout time, they've, they've used this kind of ending to make you think about the brokenness of the world that we live in. About the way things are not right and won't be right. I've mentioned before that psalms are from life to God. Psalms are our response to God. And how do we respond when, when times are dark and shocking and disorienting? Psalms are our emotional response to life in a broken world. If there's an emotion that we feel, there's a psalm for it. The psalms are works of orientation, reorientation, 
or disorientation. We've talked about a couple different psalms this time. We've talked about Psalm 5 and Psalm 9. Those are psalms of orientation. They say, here is the pathway in your relationship to God. You see that? That was pretty smooth, wasn't it? <laughs> Welcome to Pathway Community Church. <laughs> orientation sets you on the right path from the start. Psalm 5 taught us that effective prayer requires humility and obedience. Psalm 9 describes God as the righteous judge from whom comes righteous judgment. And so those psalms are songs of orientation. Here is the right way to go. A psalm of uh, reorientation moves you from the wrong path to the right pathway. Did it again. Psalm 33 shows us that a right focus on God results in praise. A psalm of disorientation makes you wonder if there's a path at all. And Psalm 88 that we're going to talk about today is the most disorienting of them all. Psalm 88 asks the question, where is God in the darkness? And then it doesn't answer the question. It's a song of lament. Lament psalms are designed to sort of take us into situations that are dark and overwhelming and frustrating. And it is the emotion that we cry out to God in the midst of pain and suffering and hardness. A Respond when the situation is too big or too awful to imagine, when there's nothing we can do to work against it. Lament Psalms give us permission to cry out to God when things are crushing, in the thick of it, when it still hurts. A lament psalm uses a customary format, so there's a, a structure that you would expect from a lament. It starts with a cry out to God, and then it describes the situation. And so it, Hey, God, help. And then here's why I need help. And then at the end of the psalm, there's, this, there's the happy ending where it says, God, I'm going to trust in you. But what Psalm 88 does is it breaks that pattern. Rather than having a happy ending, it just ends. Darkness is my closest friend. One commentator notes the, the, this, the fact that the psalms contain songs of anger, abandonment and despair shows not only that such emotions occur in the life of faith, but that such experiences are repeated, predictable, and expected. We have been this way before. Now, I've read you that quote just about every time we do a lament. We have been this way before. Psalm 88 is not just for them far away, long ago. It's for us right here and right now. Where is God in the darkness? Where is God in the darkness? A cry from the overwhelmed. Take a look at Psalm 88 right at the beginning. <clears throat> Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Now, right here at the beginning, we notice a couple things. You know, he says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. That is a positive note. This person who is crying out to God is still crying out to God. And so there are some things in this psalm. It's not, I mean, it's pretty dark. But right at the beginning, we have to hold on to this person is still talking to God. This statement, this is from Derek Kidner. This statement is the only positive note in the psalm apart from the qualities that are subjected to the questions of verses 10 through 12 and apart from the crucial fact that he continues to pray. And so what Kidner is suggesting here is that further on in verses 10 through 12, there's a way that you can sort of tease out some hope from this psalm. 
But the purpose of the psalm is not to give you a lot of hope. It's to shake you. It's to rattle you. It's about overwhelming darkness. It's written for days when there is no hope. The author says, day and night, I cry out to you. Crying out is that desperate request for immediate help. And it's constant day and night because he's not sleeping. Have you been there? He's completely overwhelmed. Take a look at verse 3. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. I am overwhelmed with trouble in the NIV is my soul is full of troubles in the ESV. He's not dead, but he's so close. Probably the closest analogy or illustration I could ever use is being sick. I was on the road in uh, Texas. I had, I had filled the pulpit for my pastor. I was always happy to fill in for him. He said, could you, I'm sick, can you fill in? I said, sure, I'll fill in. And I used his microphone without cleaning it. He had the stomach flu. I had the stomach flu. And I was all the way down in Texas with this new trainee when all of a sudden I knew I was sick. Have you had that kind of stomach flu? And so I, I was able to get out of the truck onto the floor of a factory. There's guys with forklifts and stuff. They're driving all around. I was on the floor of the factory on my hands and knees when my trainee brought me the bucket. Have you used the bucket? I used the bucket for a little while. And then I went to the bathroom. And I used the bucket and the bathroom at the same time. And then I got back in the truck. And I crawled under the blankets because I was completely exhausted. I was feverish. I was shaking. Meanwhile, I'm at work. And I can't, I can't go home. I'm in Texas for crying out loud. I happened to be close to a good friend of mine. He took me to the hospital. It's good to see you. Can you give me a ride to the emergency room? Thanks. They looked at me for a while and they said, you're sick. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's probably the flu. No kidding. It's $1,000 to get that medical opinion. Overwhelmed. What happens when that day doesn't end? What happens when one day turns into two days, and two days turns into three, and three days turns into four? The psalmist blames God. The psalmist says, you have put me in the lowest pit. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Now remember, the psalms, like theology is, like there are books of theology, and there are books where God tells us, here's who, who he is. You know, we talked about Genesis that is about the character of God and man's response to him. And we saw good responses and bad responses, and we tease out good theology from that. Theology is what we know about God, what we do about God. But the Psalms are different. The Psalms are from life back to God. 
The Psalms are when we say, hey God, I'm having a problem, or hey God, I'm excited and I want to praise you. This Psalm is about when you're overwhelmed and crushed and you have no hope. The Psalmist blames God. In the midst of being angry and suffering, that's what we do. The overwhelming negative tone of this psalm disorients us. It makes us think about life in a broken world. This literary disorientation is on purpose. It's intentional. As I thought about disorientation, I thought about uh, the, the spatial disorientation that happens with pilots. Now, what happens with spatial disorientation is that they don't, you don't have a sense of going up or down. And so you can imagine, if I, if I had a spinny chair here, and I took my lovely wife who's here with us today, and I put her in the spinny chair and I spun her around, we should do this. <laughs> I put her in a spinny chair and I spin her around and around and around until she gets dizzy, and then I say, okay, now head for the back door, honey. What's she going to do? She's going to have a hard time navigating and even walking with her feet. We did this with our grandkids, but she didn't, I did. And my son-in-law, we did it with the grandkids. It was fantastic. But what happens when you're in an airplane and you experience spatial disorientation is you've got to figure out how to go left and right and you've got to figure out up and down and you can't. Because when you feel, when your body feels like you're going up, you're actually going down. And so this happens with military pilots. You can, you can use uh, the Google and you can find the heads up display of pilots who are disoriented and they're accelerating towards the ground. And you can imagine a military airplane is designed to go really, really fast. And so these guys are pushing the throttles all the way up to go as fast as they can because they think they're going up. They think they need altitude. And what they're doing is they're driving a very expensive airplane into the ground. One guy, he actually survived, and he pulled about 20 Gs, 20 times. Your body would weigh 20 times what it does at the bottom of this pull-up. And so what the, what the military has done, because disorientation is dangerous and you can crash expensive airplanes, um, they've developed trainers where they spin you around and teach you, don't listen to your body, listen to your instruments. They spin pilots around and they get them oriented to the instruments because the instruments won't lie. The disorientation in life comes at you unexpectedly. It strikes out of the blue. And the only training that you can have for it is what's written in Scripture and life itself. Romans 8.22 says this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Life itself is hard. Life itself is broken. And we know this because we, we experience it. We feel it. And Romans teaches us that the creation itself is groaning. The world is full of darkness. And so it's natural to cry out. It's natural to say, hey God, this hurts. This is overwhelming. This is too much. Where is God in the darkness is a question from life to God when we're disoriented, confused, and angry. And you know what? I, I know many of you pretty well it, We've all experienced darkness. You've had this moment. Psalm 88 is a literary disorientation designed to shock you, to grab you in the middle of your comfort and say, hey, life is broken. And you need to think about this. 
you need to think about the darkness. It's for a time when life itself, the psalm is about a time when, when life itself is shocking and disorienting. And so what do we do with this? I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to, we have to sit back and accept it. We have to take a step away from the psalm. We have to say, this is, this is true. Life is broken. Life is hard. Life is not easy. We should thank God for every little bit of comfort that we have because all of our comfort is temporary. And so when you're, when you're writing in your journal, when you're thinking about things, and you're drinking your coffee in the morning, turn the screens off. Don't worry, the news will still be there when you're done. Or maybe the news is the perfect example. The world is not as it should be. And so take some time to accept that. Take some time to think about that. And one of the things I think the psalm teaches us is it's okay to go to God angry and hurt. He can take it. When you're angry and hurt and you cry out to God, Psalm 88 says it's okay. Where is God in the darkness? When we're screaming and crying and blaming him, it is a cry from the overwhelmed. Where is God in the darkness as there are questions from the pit? Take a look at verse 8. You have taken me from my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? The wrath. This person feels as if the wrath of God is upon him. That the burning anger and rage is upon him. That he's being crushed and he's blaming God for it. He says, I am repulsive. I am something disgusting. I am an abomination. I'm trapped. I'm under judgment. I, I cannot get out. Have you felt trapped before? He's still praying. I call to you, Lord, every day. Perhaps that's a glimmer of hope that he has to stop calling out to God. And then he asks a series of questions, all of which have no for an answer. And so I've restated this. You don't show your wonders to the dead. And so it's almost a cry out. It's like, look, I'm almost dead, Lord, and I can't even see past my nose. The spirits of the dead don't rise to praise you. So stop killing me, God. Your love isn't in the grave. Your faithfulness doesn't work in the place of destruction. Your wonders are not known in the place of darkness. Your righteous deeds are not known in the land of oblivion. The purpose of the psalm is to shake you when you're comfortable and comfort you when you're shaken. Derek Kidner says this, It is among the living that his miracles are performed, his praises sung, his constancy and acts of deliverance are shown. Death is no exponent of his glory. What that means is that in death, there is no opportunity to, to, be, to glorify God, to sing his praises, to do what we are supposed to be doing. Its whole character is negative. It is the last word in inactivity, silence, the severing of ties, corruption, gloom, oblivion. Death is the enemy of God's praise because it silences the worshiper. The New Testament agrees 
when it says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But the psalmist isn't quite dead yet. He's just mostly dead. And he feels it. He feels it deep in his being and in his bones. I have a good friend who went through what's called a forced exit from ministry. This person was, uh, had, had two different jobs. He was a pastor. He was a teacher in the seminary. And he, he did something wrong. He did something wrong that came out publicly. And he was instantly fired from both of his jobs. It's not Jerry Falwell Jr. But he fits. He fits. All of a sudden, he's gone from being this guy who's respected to this guy who's a, a, a laughingstock, a joke. That's what happened to my friend. He felt crushing weight. He was in a bad place before the failure. He was in a worse place after. He remembers being curled up on the bathroom floor, crushed by depression. He was having a Psalm 88 moment. He was having that psalm experience. The purpose of this psalm is to disorient you. It's to shock you. It's to remind you of the brokenness of the world that we live in. I want Psalm 88 to be your devotional this week. You see, God wanted this here. God put this in the psalms for a reason. And one of the big reasons is to, to connect with you. Because we've been there. We're going to be there again. Read it over and over until it brings you to tears as you face the darkness. Now, I've told you before, I'm not super emotional. Am I right? I'm not super emotional. My wife loves it when I cry. Because I don't do it very often. I cried this week. As I started thinking about this psalm, as I started like inhabiting it, I just started crying. Because that's what you do when darkness is your closest friend. I thought about people that I know. I thought about people I know who are going through incredible, life-changing, crushing darkness. And I wept for them. I want you to make this your devotional this week. And I want you to take verses 10 to 12 and I want to restate them. I want you to restate them. I want them to write, your, write them in your journal to, to meditate on them over your coffee this week. Verses 10 through 12 says this. So look at verse 10. It says this. Do you show your wonders to the dead? The answer is no. Are you dead? You're not dead. And so God has shown his wonders to you. And so ask him, hey Lord, you're showing your wonders to me day by day, moment by moment. Show them to me. Make them clear to me. Help me understand them. And then look at the next line. It says, do the, do the spirits rise up and praise you? And the answer is no. Are you a spirit? No. And so you need to praise God. Now I get it. You know, praise songs. You know, we have to be careful and all that other stuff. The shower is still your opera. Sing praises to God. Make the people in your house wonder if you're okay. Is your love declared in the grave? No. You're not in the grave. And so declare God's love. 
Let me declare God's love, your faith, his faithfulness, his wonders. Write these things in the journal. Psalm 88 is intentionally trying to disorient you so you come back around and say, hey, wait a minute. There's more here. Even when I'm crushed, I am crying out to God. Even when I am crushed, God is still faithful. Even when I am crushed, I am still his child. And the psalm wants to push you and push you and push you until you realize it. The purpose of being trained in the, in the disorientation simulator is so you know what to do when you're disoriented. That's what the psalm is doing. Where is God in the darkness? There is a cry from the overwhelmed. There are questions from the pit. Where is God when there's nothing but darkness? Take a look at verse 13. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor, darkness is my closest friend. One of the hopeful things in this psalm is that he doesn't stop talking to God. But the reality of it is, who are you going to talk to? There is no one else to talk to. You have to keep talking to God. This is about ongoing, continuous suffering when it's not going to get better and it never will. Because sometimes there's no relief. The psalmist says, I have suffered from my youth. And I think one of the things to draw from this is that there is still the possibility of unrelenting suffering in the life of the Christian, in the life of the believer. We can experience suffering. I have a friend, one of my students from a long time ago, a young man, a burly, strapping young man. Like you look at him and you'd be like, that's a strong young man. I need to move a couch. I'm going to call him. And he was in Bible college. And he dropped out because he had other things to do. Uh, he was very popular with the ladies, so there might have been a lady involved. And so he left the school, and he was, uh, he was back home in Virginia. And he decided to get a motorcycle, because he's a strong young man. And he gets a 1,200cc, you know, one of those crotch rockets that goes really fast. He was test driving it. And while he was test driving it, he hit a patch of gravel as he's going down one of these windy roads. And that gravel threw him into a barbed wire fence. And it didn't kill him. It paralyzed him. He had no use of his legs, limited use of his arms. He might not feel the pain, but he feels the suffering and the struggle every day. There is no day off from being paralyzed. I have another friend, uh, I think she's got cerebral palsy. It's the kind of thing that you don't grow old with. You die as a young person. She refused to do that. And she also refused, it was the kind of thing where by the time you were a teenager, you were in a wheelchair, well, she refused to do that too. You know when it hurts? Always. All the time. My friend Julie hurts. You wouldn't know it from looking at her. She wants to have a snowball fight, but there's no day off. 
From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. And then the psalm ends with no hope. Darkness is my closest friend. This is intentional. The downer ending reminds you that the world is broken. There's times when it's not going to be okay and it's not going to get better. The ending of the psalm, I told you there's a pattern here, right? The psalm starts with a cry out to God, gives the reasons, the problem that we face. And at the end, there's supposed to be an uplifting moment. There's no uplifting moment here. Because sometimes there isn't. The lack of hope begs for a theological answer. Where is God when there's nothing but darkness? What you think about this is how you think through your theology of suffering, your theology of hope. How does God handle the darkness? God handled the darkness by going through it. One of the things that is, is, is the greatest uh, reason to be a Christian is because, hey, the world is broken. Shouldn't God do something about it? He did. He moves through the darkness when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. You've had dark days. I've had dark days. More dark days are coming. There is no darker day than being abandoned by God. And that's what the son of God, God himself, did for you. 2,000 years ago, as an innocent Jesus Christ hung on the cross, in Matthew 27, 46, it reports his words. He cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, for my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? That blows my mind. That God would willingly choose to go through the darkness. Who would choose Psalm 88? Nobody! Apart from a God that loves you so much that he'll go. And so theologically, you know, we, we like to be theologians about it. We like to take a step back and we say, well, what happened here is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on the sins of the world. And by him taking on the sins of the world, he earned us forgiveness for our sins. And so we trust him to, to get forgiveness. That's theology. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the emotional heart response of God's Son, Jesus, on the cross. To be forsaken by God. You see that God to life theology is great. We like that kind of stuff. But from life to God we cry out. We are not crushed like Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We thank him that he was crushed for us. In the center of your most painful cry. Jesus is there with you. The, on your darkest, darkest day. Don't stop. Pray to God. God knows. In the center of this intimate uh, crushing event, whatever's going on in your life, God has experienced suffering in crushing detail. The saddest psalm was written to make us think, to shake you when you're comfortable, to comfort you when you're shaken. And the Bible is just brutally honest about the brokenness of the world around us, there are days when it isn't okay and it's not getting any better. 
I thought about I thought about personal examples, the brokenness I've experienced in my life. I don't know if I can even tell them today without breaking down. I remember the day that my dad died. I was in a truck in Chicago, of course. I remember when my brother died. My older brother died of a heroin overdose when he was 37 years old. It's almost, what, 30 years now? I remember some of your dark days. Don't stop crying out to the God who loves you so much. Of Mice and Men has a downer ending. It makes you think about what you would do, what you could do when there's no hope. The downer ending intentionally upsets our sense of security, our sense of safety. The disorientation of Psalm 88 demands that we respond to it by getting in our face and getting us twisted around. Psalm 88 ends with, Darkness is my closest friend on purpose to shock you out of an easygoing blindness to the hard realities that you face that we face. If you find that you're having a Psalm 88 day, if you have the, a sense that there's something going wrong, that life is broken, and this is for everybody who might be listening, life is hard. Come to church. Now I get it. There, there's a thing going on. Okay, fine. Find a safe way to come to church. There are a lot of people talking about, you know, online Online only takes you so far. You need people. Because how do we get through hard days together? If you find that you're having a Psalm 88 day, <clears throat> talk to someone close to you. Be bold enough to open up and say, I'm feeling a little crushed today. And then if somebody says that to you, don't just move on. Oh, you're having a bad day? Let's move. Stop. And enter into that bad day with that person. Maybe it's not even, I, I have this habit of trying to help. <laughs> Dude. Sometimes it's not about helping. It's about just sitting with someone and crying with them. If you're having that day, make sure you say something. And if someone says something, enter into that day with them. If you're having that day and it keeps coming back, if you're struggling with depression, if you're struggling with something that's going on in life that is too big for you to handle, hey, it's okay to get counseling. It's hard, but it's worth it. I'm not a counselor. I'm a teacher, but I do know some people who do that, and I'm so thankful for them. Because so often they'll, they'll bring something to mind. They'll say, have you thought about this? It's like, no, I haven't. That's what counselors do. If you find that you're at risk for self-harm, that, that's something that should trip for you and say, I need immediate help. I need to call somebody. And if you're not sure who to call, call me. I'll help you. If you find that someone calls you and says, hey, I'm thinking about hurting myself. I'm having a bad day. Come over. Go over. 
be there for people. How do we get through Psalm 88 days? Together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Psalm 88. And thank you that we are never alone in the darkness. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out. Uh, God bless you, and uh, God bless you. We'll see you next week.